Hi everyone, and welcome back to our podcast. My name is Jackie, and this week we will not be joined by Ashley, because we have separate timetables. Um, we're going to sometimes be doing separate podcasts like this one. Now, lately I've been trying to get more into reading. As a child, I was like reading all the time. I was always like partway through a book or two and most of them got finished except maybe one or two books. Lord of the Rings. Oh. Yeah, I know. I know what you're thinking. I'm, I'm feeling a bit vulnerable admitting this, but uh, I never got past the first few chapters of The Lord of the Rings. I just, I couldn't do it. It was just, uh. maybe I'll go back and I'll try. I'll try again at some point. Anyway, this week we're going to be looking at the novel The Dry by Jane Harper, which was published in 2017 and sold over 150,000 copies. Now, I know I'm late to this book, but I recently borrowed a copy because I had nothing to read and I was bored and I read it and I absolutely loved it. So obviously at this point, I'm going to have to point out that if you have not read it, spoiler alert, I'm going to be talking about all of the details. So do yourself a paver, a paver, <laughs> a favor pause here and just go read it and then come back because it is actually amazing like we have to discuss now before we get into it i'm gonna have to tell you a little bit about the author jane harper is a british australian author um at age eight she moved from the uk to baronia which is on the outskirts of melbourne hence why she uses melbourne quite a lot in her novels and it's where our protagonist aaron fork is from from living here, she gained a love of the bush and the Australian outback, and she has also written a book called Force of Nature, which is the second instalment in the Aaron Fork series. In late last year, she also published a third novel called The Lost Man. So this particular book is a mystery thriller or a whodunit, if you will, and what happens is Aaron Fork, who is a policeman in Melbourne, who specialises in financial issues, goes to Kiowara for the funeral of his old friend Luke. It is believed that Luke killed both his wife and his son before committing suicide himself. And a local policeman, who's called Rico, manages to convince Aaron to help him look into the case because he does not believe it is an open and shut case like all the other police officers seem to think. Now, there's also a dual mystery going on. Um which hints that not everything was uncovered around the suicide of Ellie Deacon, who was 16 years old at the time of her suicide 20 years earlier. Now, it gets a bit messy because Ellie Deacon was friends with Aaron, Luke, and also Gretchen, who we will get to later. It took a couple of chapters for me to be introduced to all of the characters, so of course it took me a while to get into it, but... Jane Harper's writing style is super addictive and it leaves you with like questions at the end of every chapter and it just draws you in like really well. There's a lot of suspects in the book and all of the characters pretty much like get really well developed and I just I love the way that she wrote it. Now when I was trying to work out who the murderer was I went through a lot of waves of suspicion but my first gut instinct was to suspect Gretchen Shona and the reason I suspected her was because 
of how much Aaron trusted her, just like immediately. Plus, she was also like super connected and intertwined with the two main mysteries of the story, like because she was a friend of Ellie Deacon and she also knew the Hadlers really well. As it turned out, I was, of course, 100% wrong about Gretchen. But later it was revealed that she had at least been jealous of Karen, who was Luke's wife, because she still wanted to be with him. Aaron also suspected that Luke was the father of Gretchen's son, but she denied that, and I really like how it sort of stayed a little bit ambiguous as to whether or not it was true. The next person I was, like, a little bit, mm, I don't know about, was Jamie Sullivan. But, like, I quickly realised he was just too suspicious, like, way too suspicious to be guilty. Um, and it wasn't a surprise when his alibi at the time of the shooting turned out to be his secret gay lover. Um, it really makes sense that in, like, such a such a toxic community, like, with so much toxic masculinity, especially from, like, Mal Deacon and Grant Dow, like, it's not a surprise that he had to try and keep that hidden. And I feel like... Harper may have been trying to say something about the nature of small Australian towns with this generally. I'm not saying like all Australian towns are unaccepting, but the city is generally more progressive than the country if you like look at just the election results, for example. Mal Deacon, who was Ellie Deacon's father, and Grant Dow, her cousin, both seemed like way too obvious given their open hatred for Luke and also Aaron as well. And it was, it just seemed so obvious that it wasn't them that I wrongly assumed that they were completely innocent, which of course we'll get to later. As for Scott Whitlam, the principal, I never suspected him until Harper gave us a good reason to doubt his integrity, which for me was when he couldn't afford to buy Aaron a drink and it was revealed that he had a serious gambling problem. I absolutely love the way that this was done with all the focus on Luke until the true intended victim was discovered to be Karen, his wife. I mean, to me, of course, this speaks volumes about the way society operates. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but this might be a symbol of how, in different scenarios, women are either ignored or not valued as much as men, just like generally. And Luke Hadler's death was just a byproduct of Karen's murder, because she discovered that Scott Whitlam had stolen $50,000 in school funding to pay back a previous gambling-related debt. I think this isn't the only instance of symbolic death in the book, because at the very end of the novel... Aaron discovers evidence that 20 years earlier, Ellie Deacon did not kill herself, but instead attempted to run away from her abusive father. And he discovers that her father had in fact killed her and then framed her death as a suicide. And the reason I think that this is symbolic is because in Australia, one woman dies every week from domestic violence. So the death of Ellie Deacon is a reminder that domestic abuse is very real and very present in today's world. Overall, I really enjoyed the book, not only because it's such an addictive, detailed work, but also because I felt it had something really intelligent to say, like, about actual issues facing Australians, including, like, the drought, gambling, and domestic abuse. This book is going to be made into a film soon, and I'm super excited to go watch that, and you guys should definitely go watch that too when it comes out. Crime fiction itself is really popular, and it makes up a third of all adult fiction, that is consumed in Australia. It probably won't surprise you that women are actually huge fans of crime fiction. In fact, um, at a recent festival in Sydney, 80% of the attendees were women. This was a crime fiction festival. 
And I suppose all of this begs the question, why do women love crime fiction so much? For starters, female readers outnumber male readers, and that would probably affect the numbers. But I think there's probably more to it than that. For example, when a woman is a victim of violence at the hands of a man, the story of what happened to her sort of like represents the story of women who may not get their story heard. And in murder mysteries, the murderer is always found and justice is always achieved, while that may not necessarily happen in real life. And another thing about crime fiction is that they it provides escapism. I personally love reading for this reason, as just like stories let us get away from either whatever's going on in our life that's either unpleasant or just plain boring. And yeah, there's probably a lot more to it than that. But what do you think? Why do you think women love crime fiction so much? Speaking of female empowerment, let's talk a bit more about Jane Harper, the storytelling queen that she is. She was a journalist for many years before becoming a fiction writer. And I watched her TED Talk, which was released in late 2018. I recommend you give it a watch if there's anything in your life that you really want to achieve and you seem to just not be able to get done. And something I'm pretty sure we can all relate to. Um, she basically said that she always wanted to write books, but she put too much pressure on herself because what she really wanted was to write a book, get it published and for it to be a bestseller. But in order to begin, she had to simplify it for herself and focus on the first task, which was like actually writing the book. She wrote the dry while she was working full time as a journalist by doing an hour before and after work every day. That's like, that's a lot. Can you imagine just like doing that? Like doing a nine to five plus so much more work. Anyway, she is now a full-time author and she actually managed to achieve her dream with a focus on consistency and small steps. So that's just really amazing that she managed to actually do that because there are just so many people who have something that they really want to do and they just don't manage to get it done pretty much and that's something that I can definitely relate to her hard work and dedication that's I find that really inspiring and I definitely intend to check out more of her books I've always liked mystery stories myself like as a kid I read a lot of um, Sherlock Holmes short stories as well as Agatha Christie books and I actually found out recently that Christie leaves clues for you to work out the killer's identity yourself but uh, I think we know how good I was at that based on my guess with the dry. <laughs> Not good. I only got into thrillers recently after concluding that young adult fiction is basically trash. In case you're wondering how I reached this conclusion, it happened in an early stage of John Green's An Abundance of Catherines, when a certain rom-com trope reared its ugly head. I'm sorry, John Green, but I could not continue. I threw out my bookmark and return the book to the library where some unfortunate teen will inevitably pick it up thinking, ooh, John Green, before realising their mistake way too late. As you can tell, that's a whole thing, but uh, I think we'll return to that, specifically John Green novels and young adult fiction, in a later podcast. For now, though, we'll move on to um, thrillers. About two years ago, I read The Da Vinci Code, which gave me some interest in this genre, because it was just such an addictive read. Um, last year I read Stephen King's It, but I think the book that actually made me think, ooh, this is actually like a genre that might be interesting, 
was um, The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. If you haven't read that book, then you actually need to. But I must warn you, please don't start it at night. I was on a road trip with my parents staying in an Airbnb place when I picked the book up on the shelf because I was just so bored. And my mum, who'd already read it, warned me that I couldn't take it to the next place we were staying at because obviously the book belongs to the place. Anyway, so I picked it up anyway and I finished it at 3am and I was driving the next day. So uh, when I put it back on the shelf the next morning, she was like, I'm sure we'll find the book somewhere else on the way home, uh, thinking that I needed to keep reading it. But I figured it was probably a good idea not to mention that I'd actually finished it at 3am because I was driving. Warning, do not drive tired. It's a bad idea. We made it to our next destination, but um, just don't drive tired. It's not good for you. Anyway, that's enough about my reading habits. Um, Something of interest this week. Um... In honour of Bandersnatch, which Ashley and I discussed in a previous podcast, and you should check that out if you have not already, I decided to dig my copy of Island of Secrets out of the bookshelf for you. This book is a choose-your-own-adventure novel by Kim Jordan, and it was published in 1985. I don't know how my family acquired it, but it may have been from an op shop or a second-hand bookstore because there's a 50-cent sticker on the front cover. In this story, you have applied to be a quote, villa girl in Greece for a while because you are desperately bored of your life, your boyfriend, and your mother. And I'm now going to read the first part for you. We'll start with chapter one, shall we? Penny shows you to your room. It is small and spartan, but the spectacular view makes up for it. From the open window, you can see right along the bay, from Simnos town to the windmill on top of the cliff path. The room also has the convenience of two entrances, one from the corridor and the other from a flight of stone steps leading up to the side of the villa. A few scattered belongings here and there, left by your predecessor. A dried up stick of mascara, a tube of sticky suncran- suntan cream, a couple of unused postcards, and a few paperbacks. You save the postcards in the books and throw the rest in the bin. Pulling out the top drawer of a wooden chest of drawers, you discover a small pamphlet, crudely printed on plain white paper, its edges now yellow and curled up with time. On the front cover is a pen and ink illustration of what looks like a monastery, with imposing domed windows standing high on a mountaintop surrounded by olive groves. Underneath the picture is written, The History of Simnos. You put the pamphlet to one side and you finish unpacking, intending to come back to it later. Your first task is to settle in the new guests. There are some short-stay guests and some long-stay, like the Chadwicks, who have arrived with two children. Mrs Chadwick's brother, Greg Lewis, and the grandmother, Irene Chadwick. When everyone is safely installed, you decide to do a quick tour of inspection to make sure they are all happy. Raised voices from room six indicate that trouble is brewing. The door is open, so you peep cautiously into the room and ask if you can be of any assistance. Donna Chadwick, a well-groomed woman in her early thirties, 
with bright honey blonde hair and rather too much makeup, ooh, that's a bit judgmental, is standing, hands on hips, in the centre of the room. You most certainly can be of assistance, young lady. We've booked for a long holiday, and when I book a room with an ensuite bathroom, I expect to get what I pay for. Not a cubby hole with a shower in it. Her husband Steve is fiddling with the suitcases, looking as though he wished the floor would swallow him up. Don't you dare unpack those bags, Steve, orders Donna. We're not staying in this room. Unless you can offer us alternative accommodation, we're going off to the most expensive hotel we can find, and Villa Link can foot the bill. How will you handle this tricky situation? We can either lay down the law and tell Donna she is being unreasonable and turn to page 25 to see what happens next, or we can apologise profusely. Which do you think I should pick? Well, that's all you get for now. And that is the end of this podcast. So, tune in next time to find out what it is we're going to be talking about. Bye! If this podcast has raised any concerns for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 and Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636.